Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. I have something very special to share with you all at the end of this episode, but you have to wait till the very end to get to it. Until then, I hope you enjoy this conversation with myself and Pastor Paul Anthony Turner. If you want to follow Paul, you can follow him on Instagram at paul.anthony.turner and myself at Kendra R. Snow with an X. But right now, this is Advent Next. All right, everyone. Uh, I have I have had a very interesting week with you all. I've gotten a lot of feedback from these last two episodes with Pastor Alicia Johnston, and I kind of just want to start off by saying thank you for your feedback and thank you for just being vocal in whether you are agreeing with the things that were presented or disagreeing. I think that we do need to have more conversations, and I hope that these conversations begin to push us into just thinking more critically about the topic. I think the the biggest takeaway that I took from last week and the last couple weeks is this is a topic that needs more study. And so the fact that you guys are curious and engaged, um, I totally get that. So before we get started, I, I have a special guest today. You guys have seen him on this show before, uh, Pastor Paul Anthony Turner, who is uh, doing his PhD right now in philosophy. Uh, thanks so much for being on today. Glad to be here. You know I'm glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to get turned um, up like always. <laughs> yes. Yes, ma'am. Oh, we shout for the people. Uh, and I'm so glad to have him on today because I think these are just... These are important topics, and this is kind of a debriefing episode, kind of sharing some of the reactions and perspectives, but also kind of validating some of the fears. Now, one thing I can say is, like, I know that this topic can be really traumatic and can can trigger some flight or fight responses. Flight or flight, okay, fight or flight responses. There it is. And I think that you know, especially like in the context of religion and the context of Adventism, where we're moving into a space of like being saved. And there are a lot of consequences at stake, eternal salvation, right? And somebody comes in and and talks about a perspective that seems to jeopardize uh, that salvation. It can feel like this is the time to fight or to flee, you know, to say, I'm never going to listen to this podcast again, or I'm going to fight you because I think that you're leading people astray. I totally think that those responses are valid. Uh, My amygdala gets triggered all the time, and I'm ready to fight or flight. (laughs) Um, So it's completely human and completely normal. And so I just want to also even maybe take a little responsibility for, you know, uh, maybe there's people who are shocked uh, by the episode and Maybe I could have done a show leading up to this to talk about some of the dilemmas that the church is facing and how they're dealing with that. And so I kind of want to do that as like a postscript. I think that this issue when it comes to LGBTQ theology and the church and dealing with LGBTQ members, I'm just going to say queer because it's easier, um, that we do need to apply a little more just thinking and intellectual, but also ethical honesty and saying, you know, 
is my theology and my practice really lining up? So we'll talk a little bit about some dilemmas. And I think that that sets up the conversation for people to say, I want to deal with this dilemma in two different ways, whether I'm going to be very strict um, in kind of my biblical interpretations or whether I'm going to apply some of my experience and theology and, you know, coming to a different conclusion. And so, Paul, you do something really well. And maybe you can lead out in the conversation in this. But like, you know, I think that it's difficult to hold space for positions that seem very dangerous or that when people come to different conclusions than us. And I just want to ask you, like, how, like, you were in a class the other day and and we were dealing with people with a lot of different perspectives. So how do you really, how do we manage this as a church when people come to different theological conclusions on things that we think are absolutely essential? Yeah, that's a really good question. And again, it's, and it's, I think it's really good that you, you validated people's concerns. Um, because, you know, even if you might disagree that someone's concern, you know, if someone should be overly concerned about a particular matter, the fact that they are concerned about something demonstrates that maybe they're, they're looking, you know, they're trying to be a, a good Christian or they're trying to be biblical or, or they're trying to stand up for um, this, this principle they think is true. So on that note, um, it's good that we validate those concerns when they come up. When, where it becomes problematic is where people are no longer willing to engage in a conversation and be willing to, to listen to an mm-hmm. opinion that's different than the one they hold. And I think that the reason why we are so reticent to listen to opinions with which we differ is because we think that our salvation lies in us getting every point of teaching correct. And that's why you mm-hmm. often hear within Adventism, and it's not just an Adventist thing, by the way, it's a, it's a Christian thing. It's a, it's a human thing in reality. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll hear people say, I have the truth. Um, I, I heard that growing up a lot. Um, when we would, um, growing up in the churches, I would, you know, I, I attended, you would hear Adventist theology or the Adventist theological tradition juxtaposed with Baptist theology or Catholic right. theology, et cetera. And it was, yeah, they have a few points of teaching that are, are good and right and such, but we have the truth, capital T. They have right. truths, t, you know, lowercase t, but we have the truth. Yeah, it's <laughs> and, true. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's, there's a fear that if I entertain something that someone else has said, then I'm actually going back, not merely on, the, on that truth, capital T, that I have ascertained to be correct, but I'm going back on the one from whom I believe I received that truth, namely God. Um, right. But there's a lot of epistemological or knowledge pertaining um, issues with that belief, with that way of approaching truth. Um, because mm-hmm. no longer is Jesus Christ the center of truth, or sorry, no longer is Jesus the truth. Now it's propositions and statements of, mm. of, of, of faith that usurp Christ who is the truth. And okay. there's all kinds of problems there. You just said something. Jesus is the truth. Okay, like let's let that marinate for a second because that's like, <laughs> right? And you're right. We I think we have dissected this down to propositions and theology and we have dissected it and say this is where like this is where your protection is and it it leads us in a place where we can't receive progressive revelation 
right? And I'm not making a case for anything right now. I'm just saying if God were to lead us into, for example, you know, uh, we've been led past the stages of Martin Luther, right, and John Calvin, and we've allowed ourselves to say, oh, you know, women aren't as evil as Martin Luther thought, and the Jews aren't bad. Like, like we've allowed ourselves <laughs> to progress in our theology. Yeah, praise uh, the Lord. And <laughs> and in our in our interpretation of how to deal with humanity, and but if we get stuck in those propositions, you're right, we're not following Jesus as the truth. Right? Exactly, and you know the irony is, the irony is that especially for Adventists, this way of thinking that we this this theological way that we have been thinking is a rut that we've allowed ourselves to get stuck in, mm-hmm. um, and it flies in the face of how our how the pioneers of our denomination. Um, approached matters of scripture. Um, we have mm-hmm. an, a very, we've actually in a, in a large way become in, in many ways, the very thing that I believe they would have called out. And that's, and, and that's to say that we have become very creedal. Um, Adventist, there's, there's a, um, I think it was last year, there was an Adventist review article or something where they posted this, this early Adventist um, drawing, or there was a wood carving that was made of hmm. the beasts of, of, of Revelation chapter 13. And so, if, I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, somewhere on this wood carving, it says, these are the sins of the United States, slavery hmm. and creeds. And I was like, oh, wow. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. Because you know, wow. as an Adventist growing up, we... we we, we, nowadays we ha- we're, we're, we dwell on this really weird place of, yeah, we say on the books that we don't believe in, in creeds, we don't hold any creed but the word of God, but yet, but yet we have two innate fundamental beliefs and mm-hmm. no one can question those things any longer. We can't reconsider those things any longer, even though back then they were constantly reassessing, um, sometimes completely overhauling something sometimes just making uh, adjustments and things. But right. now we are so creedal about the ways we approach our teachings. And I think, ironically, people think that they're being Adventists by having this approach toward our, <laughs> toward our doctrines. Yeah. Ellen White would have had a lot to say about how creedal we've become. Mm-hmm. And it's just very interesting that, we're, we're, that we've become like this. Yeah, it's so, and you're so right. I mean, like, would the early Adventists be able to join the Adventist church today? Probably not. They would not have. Guess what? They were, um, most of them, um, up until uh, we were doing some research, um, there was some research that one of our professors um, made us aware of when I was in seminary, um, that it wasn't until fairly late in the game that Trinitarianism arose within the church. For, right. the, for the for the beginning of uh, the beginning of our history, the majority of our leaders were were semi Aryan, and yeah. some and, and for a long time did not believe in the divinity of Christ and the divinity of the whole or even personhood of the, of Holy, the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Right. It, it's just like I mean, so yeah, and they weren't even of, keeping the Sabbath. You know, they weren't like, keeping the Sabbath. They weren't Ellen White the, the ate pork, <laughs> right? You know, <laughs> I, I think this is so true. Like like early Adventists would not be able to uh, to join the Adventist church today. And I think it just goes to show, like, are we leaving room for people to progress in their understanding or even to progress beyond what we understand right now, right? Exactly. You made a really interesting point, and I, and I want you to draw it out because you said this in class the other day about the way that we approach the Sabbath, 
right, as a doctrinal issue in how we relate to other Christians who don't keep the Sabbath. And I think you made a really good point, so I'll let you take it. Okay, yeah. Um, if I remember correctly, um, <laughs> the, the point I made there is there are certain ma- theological matters that we are willing to give a greater deal of grace mm. with toward those with whom we disagree than others. So, mm. for instance, if, if there's a person who keeps Sunday as holy or if there's a person who believes that when people die, they go to heaven or hell or if... Um, or if a person doesn't believe in the 2300-day prophecies or if they don't believe in all the different doctrines we believe in, we will give them much more grace than we will give a person who maintains affirming theology. Hmm. In fact, I would say that as a church, we don't give grace to that perspective, to the affirming um, um, theological perspective whatsoever. It's automatically shot down as being profligate, deviant, evil, you're twisting scripture, you're being sentimental, you're reading into the text, you're extrapolating from history or, or um, interpolating into, into the scriptures. And, but we, and even though we, we'll, we might, we do disagree with people who keep Sunday as holy and we disagree with the, the immortality of the soul, we're willing to give them grace on those things. We are. Yeah. But it's very, it's telling that when it comes to a matter like this, talking about sexuality, where it's such a, it's such an existentially weighty matter, and we automatically just shut the door to the whole conversation. It says there's a lot more there than your concern about keeping the Bible, keeping theology pure, or your sense of of, of inner piety. That mm-hmm. indicates to me that there's bigotry and prejudice there. I'm just going to say it like it is, because if you're willing to give grace to another person whose theological position, by the way, Sunday keeping and, um, and immortality of the soul, those have major implications um, for, for how we approach, how we understand sin, um, yeah. our, our cosmology, etc. Major implications. But God forbid we should allow that same kind of grace for a discussion about a group of people whom you're telling should, um, you know, um, should not be able to marry people. It would be natural for them to be married to, um, and that, you know, people who are transgender should not be able to do things that would help their experience to be more wholesome. And, 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 and again, there's just so much prejudice there and it's just, it just becomes really obvious. Yeah. 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 I I love that because it's, when you said that, I was like, wow, bombshell. I hope, (laughs) but I'm, I'm sad. I think a lot of people received it. Um, because it is true, you know, like I have a lot of non SDA friends who are Christians who I would never question their Christianity who have deep, like devotional walks with Jesus. And that I love talking to because they're just, you know, Jesus is in their life. Right. Mm -hmm. So and they're also not all that interested in me telling them about the Sabbath, right? They're not convicted on it, right? right? And and I don't believe God is judging them because they don't have this conviction. But we are now taking people who might have a conviction about that same-sex marriage is okay and that there is no immorality in loving another person. And so that, but, and they're convicted of that. And we're saying, well, you're out the club. Like, there's just no room and no space for that. And, and I guess I just want to paint the dilemma, you know, because I think if we're being honest about our theology, 
We also have to be honest about the social implications of that theology because we are responsible to our fellow men, right? Yes. And so, like, when I think about, you know, what is the fruit of our theology? How is it manifesting in the lives of LGBTQ members? And I see that... I th- I th- okay, these are your statistics. Um, I think I picked them up from you, but I don't know. But like, the, or maybe I picked them up from reading an article. I can't remember. But like that, they're that Christians who are LGBTQ or LGBTQ members who are Christians are nine times more likely to commit suicide. Is that correct? I don't know that statistic okay. off the top of my head, but from what I have seen, it is increasingly worse in the church than it is outside the church. Right, right. So I'm gonna get I'm gonna really get some real statistics for everybody here, mm-hmm. uh, but like, yeah, like it's 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 increasingly worse. There's more suicide per Christian LGBTQ than the general LGBTQ population, which is already large. You know, they're already mm-hmm. disproportionately suicidal. So when I look at the fruit of that, I have to say, how is my theology contributing to that? And is that really the love of God? How do we start wrestling with some of these questions? Like, how do we start addressing those dilemmas? What are some Mm. things that you're working through, like, right now as you're, like, considering those dilemmas? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. There are are so many different ways to go about this. And, like, the philosopher in me is just, like, going every which kind of way now, which way (laughs) to approach it. Um, I, my, okay, so when I study philosophy, the, my, my field of interest has is in epistemology, and for those who might not be familiar with that term, um, it, that's just the, the study of of knowledge and how do we know what we know? What are the structures of knowing? What are the faculties of the mind or of reason that are involved in the process of knowing? Um, that's that's what epistemology is all about, and especially with as a um, as a subcategory or subdiscipline. Um, of epistemology is hermeneutics, which is specifically about interpretation of mm. anything, really. Um, I'm very interested in how do, how do people go about interpreting things? What are the assumptions that we have about how well we can interpret things? And what are the assumptions we have about what things are available um, for us to know? So mm. um, I think... So when you when we enter into a conversation, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna first describe what often happens in controversial um, or hot um, button topics, and then I'm gonna kind of paint a history, a philosophical and theological history, very brief as to why we approach these matters like that and the ways that we have been. So um, you'll be in a conversation with somebody, and you'll say, "Well, I believe the Sabbath is is still binding for us." as Christians. And then another person, a Sunday keeper, um, it sounds so weird to call them Sunday keepers, <laughs> but it's right, not a bad right. thing. Sorry. It is, I mean, we're Sabbath <laughs> keepers. It sounds weird to say that sometimes they're Sunday keepers. But anyways, <laughs> right. um, by the way, Sunday keepers are going to be busting heaven wide open. So and there's a lot of Sabbath keepers yeah. who will be busting hell wide open. So, oh. okay. We'll get into that in a second though. <laughs> but so there's a, then, then there'll be a Sunday keeper who will say, well, I think that Sunday keeping is um, binding for us as Christians because of X, Y, and Z. The Sabbath keeper will, come, keeper will come back and say, well, I think that you're wrong because I'm just reading the text. And the Sunday keeper will be like, but wait, I'm just reading the text. And then the Sabbath keeper will come back, well, I'm being more objective. I'm being, I, 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 I'm looking at the text for what it really is. And the Sunday keeper is like, well, I'm doing the very same thing. 
I'm being just as objective as you. Mm-hmm. So there's this assumption that we have when we approach the word of God and actually any, the text of life itself, when we're interpreting situations in life or whatever it is, there is the assumption that we operate under that I'm able to know what the text, the word of God or anything means um, in and of itself. I can know the true objective, the absolute objective meaning of this text without my subjectivity getting in the way. And by subjectivity, mm-hmm. just, we are subjects. When you say I, you're referring to yourself as a subject. Um, when right. I say you, I'm referring to you as a subject. You have um, your own feelings, your own desires, your tastes, your own um, sensibilities, your own presuppositions and biases, etc. And when people say, when I'm looking at the text, I'm being objective, people are claiming I have, um, I have overcome my subjectivity and I can now be absolutely objective and know what the truth is on this matter. But mm. hello, the person on the other side of the conversation is saying the very same thing. Exactly. And just to like pause and give an example, this was the argument of slavery in America, right? You had the people exactly. in the South who were saying, I'm reading in the Bible, slavery's in the Ten Commandments even, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, like I, uh, there's a, justifi- a biblical justification for slavery. And then you had people in the North who said, I mean, even Paul, Paul was not the guy to look to to tear down institutions, right? He was like, slaves submit to your masters, right? Like he, he talked about how to operate within a context, but he wasn't he wasn't commenting on the justice of that system. Mm. And so people will say like, oh, well, Paul didn't speak against it. So there you go. Like that's as far as we can take it. And then you had people on the other side of the conversation who allowed them to progress themselves in revelation and the understanding of human dignity. And Mm. they found texts about, uh, you know, God liberating uh, the Israelites from Egypt or, you know, Galatians 3.28, there's neither free nor slave, male nor female, like little texts like this that kind of broke open this sense of like, we should all be equal. No one should own anybody else. Like, even though Paul says this, the, it's, it's pointing to a higher ethic and that higher mm-hmm. ethic is freedom for everybody. But like you're saying, both people looked at the same text and came to vastly different conclusions. Exactly. No, that, that's, a, that's a great example. And I'm just going to say this. Well, actually, maybe I'll give the history first of why we operate in those kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Why is it that we feel comfortable and that it's necessary for me to be able to claim, for us to be able to claim um, absolute objectivity when I'm looking at the word of God? And unless I can have this absolute sense of certainty on what a text says, then it's not worth believing. Um, Mm. So this starts off with um, 400s BC or thereabouts um, with people like Plato and Aristotle. Um, Plato put forward, and these are Greek philosophers, Plato put forward the idea that our reasoning faculties are able to perfectly discern and intuit the transcendent realm where there is God, where the gods are, where there are the, these, um, these, the, these, uh, these forms, as he called them, these eternal things that are outside of time and space. He thought that we were able to transcend the, limit, the, the limitations of the empirical realm where there's everyday experience, like books and lights and, 
and, and phones and people and words and sights and sounds and tastes, etc. He thought that we were able to get beyond those things because he thought that those things impeded our ability to know what is absolutely real in the universe. So he's like, yo, what can I do to escape the empirical realm? We thought, well, um, maybe it's that I, well, I'm, I'm, I'm bastardizing this greatly, but essentially <laughs> for illustration, it's like, how do I get past this? Well, it must be that my mind the, and the faculties of my, of my mind are able to transcend this plane, this realm, the empirical realm and get to the transcendent realm. Um, and the next, uh, the next 19, 1900, um, 2000 years of Western, um, theological and philosophical history operated under that assumption up until, mm. uh, up until Immanuel Kant, mm. um, Immanuel Kant was a German philosopher who looks at what Plato was saying is like, now, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. You're saying that your, that your rational faculties are both the means by which you know the empirical realm, but also they're the same faculties that allow you to know the realm where there is no time and space. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> mm, um, yeah. and, and maybe that might be a mouthful, but essentially what Kant is trying to demonstrate is we are only able to have knowledge in this as subjects. Mm. We are not able to overcome our subjectivity. We are, we are necessarily subjective entities. You can't, you can't stop being a subject and start interacting with an object. <laughs> you yeah. are a subject interacting with an object, but there will always be a sense in which you are approximating toward an understanding of that object. You will never understand um, a thing in itself, how we refer to in philosophy, we refer to the absolute reality of a thing as the thing in itself. You're only yeah. going to be able to approximate it, but you're never going to arrive at that. Sorry. That's just how, yeah. that's just how it works. Um, and that's been a tough pill for a lot of Christians to swallow right. because we want the absolute certainty. We want to know that I can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt there is a God. I want to know that when I look at nature and I see design, well, that means that there is necessarily a designer or yeah. et cetera. But Kant points out this really beautiful, makes this beautiful point that if you feel the need to think about truth in that way, that means you have done away with a need for faith. If mm. you are able to know absolutely this is the absolute truth on these matters and I have nothing else to learn. You don't need faith anymore. What do you need faith for? If you already, if the thing is there in front of you, what do you need right. to have faith in anymore? But right. yet the scripture says in Hebrews that without faith, it is impossible to please God. You have mm -hmm. to have faith. Um, but a lot of Christians, and indeed this is, I think this is actually a very, just a very human thing. We don't want to, um, we don't want to exercise faith. We want to know for certain the way things actually are. And you see this Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, um, ethics makes mm. this point very beautifully in like the first chapter. It was amazing to hear it explained this way. Adam and Eve's sin was a result of, was in their failure to respect that there is a limitation to what we can know and how we can know and how certain 
we can be, we can be of what something. we know. Exactly. I love they were that. unwilling to 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 accept. There's there, there's certain things that are only proper for God to know. There's only mm. things that only God has the ontology or the the make the the being makeup um, in order to know. Um, they weren't willing to to stay in their lane, as it were, and that led them to seek after knowledge that was only proper to God. And we've been doing the very same thing as them since. And when it comes to this conversation of regarding sexuality, we don't want to, um, we don't, we want to, we want to follow the same suit as, as, as even Adam back in the garden. We're not willing to say, oh, we could potentially be wrong when it comes to matters of sexuality. We don't want to consider that transgender experience is actually, is actually real. We don't want to consider that gay marriage is acceptable to God. We don't want to consider those things because that would that would that would wreck our sense of absolute um, of absolute certainty in things. Yeah, I I love the way that you're putting this. You know that the fact that there are limitations to what we can know, and I think I'm just going to kind of philosophize for a little bit, and then yes. like and then throw this back in your court because this is like these are the dilemmas that I'm working through myself and I think when people look at something like well gay marriage they think well this is explicitly forbidden like you look at Leviticus and you look at Romans and you look at like first Corinthians and you're thinking like this is explicit and what I've come to learn right like is that there are there are a lot of things that the Bible says about women and about slavery that is just not it's just not applicable. It's not a reflection of the absolute truth and the absolute ethic of where God is leading us, right? And so I have to pull from something else, right? I'm pulling from this idea that God is good and that God is love and that God has created people equal. And I'm, I'm having to like, and I think, I think the journey of faith requires this, that, that, that you're having to apply now this all these principles that you've gathered about who God is and then now contextualize them. And sometimes I think like when I look at the old Testament, you know, you look at some of the ritual laws, like wash your hands before you eat. And I wonder, you know, God, why didn't you just tell them that there are microbes and something like bacteria (laughs) and viruses, right? And that you have to keep yourself clean or you'll get sick. right? Right. Like, because now these very, uh, like these statements that he's made, you know, becomes ritualized, right? Now they're just washing their hands and blaming Jesus for not washing his hands, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so I know that there's a reason that God is giving these commands. And I started to think like, there are two ways that I can think about God. Like either he said this because he's authoritarian and his lust has a lust for power, right? I said it to so do it. And, or like there is something greater to him. There's a rationale for why he said these things. There's a, there's something that I can make sense of. You know, when I look at the 10 commandments, like they make sense to me, right? The first four commandments make sense in this, in the, in the realm of what I would consider self-dignity, right? Because if you love anything other than God, that thing will degrade you, right? If you love money and you apply that to everything in your life, you will, you know, swindle a grandmother who's trying to raise her two children to get an extra couple hundred bucks at a used car sale lot. Like you will do that because you love money, right? And it, it dehumanizes you. 
And the other six is about like, okay, I can rationally apply this to how to treat other people. You know, that there's a, these are social provisions that God is, that God is implementing. They're not just this authoritarian um, statements. Now, why didn't God just say that? Why didn't God just explain more of himself um, so that <laughs> we could, like, just to, like, clear up the controversy? And I've been drawing a little bit on, like, Peckham's work on the theodicy of, like, the fact that, you know, how is God good in an evil world? And if he's all-powerful, why doesn't he do certain things? And so I've started to just draw on the fact that maybe if he could, maybe there's some limitations within, this is all speculative, right, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there's some type of limitations, you know, in this great controversy and the rules of engagement that he just couldn't go out and explain away everything, but mm-hmm. he gave us reason and he's giving us the Holy Spirit and he's helping us dig him out and discover him yes. um, in ways that maybe he couldn't be more explicit. So for me, I'm like using these tools and believing that God is loving and then I and believing that there's reason um, to why he gives his commandments. And then I'm stuck in a dilemma. And my dilemma is like when it comes to gay marriage and, you know, stone me if you want <laughs> or call me a heretic. People who are watching like, but like I, I have a hard time and this is just being the honest truth. I have a hard time seeing the immorality side of it, mm-hmm. right? How love is evil. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, what are some of your thoughts on this? How are you, like, I, I love this philosophy that you, you're bringing into and understanding our own subjectivity and how we approach objective knowledge. And even just like in a casual aside, like, how do we approach these difficult dilemmas and how are you approaching them? How are you wrestling through something like that? How do we, you know? It can be very tricky because what I've seen a lot of people do, it'll be, they'll, 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 they'll apply a, uh, a sloppy hermeneutic of cheap grace mm. to everything that seems difficult in the word. And if it seems hard, well, can't be that God would do this thing or that. On the other side, however, are the people who are like, if it's hard, if it's difficult, sucks to suck, but this is what it is and tough it out. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like both sides are very, um, very, um, very dangerous. And it's something that as I've been processing, um, through this matter over the last, especially the last month, I've had to firstly recognize that I've, I've shifted in my theology to become affirming even though for all of my gay life up until like a month or so ago, I've held a traditional biblical sex ethic to varying, de- and ver- to varying degrees. Mm-hmm. But I had, to, I had to wrestle with the fact that, okay, I, I see what these texts, I see the texts, I'm reading the words written on the page, mm-hmm. but I recognize that there are a whole host of different things that have been informing my subjectivity that would that can cause me to go in any direction and so in this situation when it when it when it's and i I'm hope I'm, i hope i get to your that i'm getting to your question i'm no, gonna, you are it's gonna go all over the place i had to really make sure i was submitting to god i think that ultimately people we need to make sure that we're surrendering to god i don't think that people actually sub- submit to the lordship of christ um and i'm not saying i'm perfect at it <laughs> 
not. But it's one of those things I, my motto is everything for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. Um, to live submitted to the, to, um, to the authority of Jesus Christ and to his word. Um, and if I feel like I'm approaching the scripture in a way where I'm trying to compromise or where I'm trying to be ungracious or unyielding, either mm-hmm. side, either extreme, if I sense I'm doing either one, then I'm already deciding what, what, uh, what, what I'm going to do. I'm already, t- I'm already deciding that I'm not going to let go of a particular lens through which I'm looking at scripture. Maybe I should, maybe I should explain it this way. Please. Um, a, so a later development of Immanuel Kant's idea was, um, was made by a philosopher, a, Ger- a Jewish German philosopher um, by the Czech, maybe it was Czech. I don't remember. I think it was Czech actually. Anyways, philosopher named Edmund Husserl. He's the father of this discipline called phenomenology mm-hmm. and phenomenology one of the one of the aspects of phenomenology is this thing called intentionality, and intentionality basically. I'm going to do this because my mom hates when I use this this illustration, but I love to use it because it drives <laughs> her crazy. So intentionality is all about okay, when you are engaged with various objects in life, whether it's a conversation you're having with someone, um, whether it's the uh, looking at the Word of God or even looking at this water bottle, it's tempting to believe that what can be said to be most essential to this water bottle or to the Bible is exactly how I'm seeing it at any particular moment. And what's, di- what's dangerous is there are other things about this, about this bottle, for instance, that I might be missing because I'm not willing to consider that there are other sides of it. And so there are what he refers to um, there are these intentional structures of consciousness that cause us to grasp hold of certain aspects of things, but not others. And this requires, therefore, if we're going to be increasingly objective, not in the absolute sense, but in a, um, in a I guess, in a modified objectivity where I'm becoming increasingly aware of my biases, in order to become increasingly objective, to be able to see the object for what it is and all its manifold of appearances requires that I become reflective, reflective mm-hmm. on my biases, my prejudices, my feelings toward a thing. And so what does that look like? Okay. So from my perspective, I'm looking at this bottle right now and I see um, some words written in the Navajo language and in English. And it might be, and I'm looking at, I see also, that there's a clip that opens the water bottle up right there. And if I press this button, it opens right here. And it might be tempting to think, okay, that's all that, 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 that can be said to be about this bottle right here. But mm-hmm. I can consider, wait a second, if I turn it a little bit, if I reflect and think, wait a second, but what if I'm missing something? What if there's more to the picture? And I turn the bottle and like, oh, wait, there's a sticker of a piece of pumpkin, of, of sweet potato pie there. And there's, uh, there's some measurements right here. And furthermore, there's water in it and it has some weight to it and the lid is black and, oh, look, there's a bottom side to it, etc. Yeah. Only when you are willing to be reflective on the intentional states of consciousness, will you be able to be aware of other aspects that comprise a thing. And it might mm-hmm. cause you to be like, oh, I was completely wrong or yeah, I, I was right a little bit, but there's also a little bit more to the picture. And I think that when it comes to talking about sexuality um, in the church, we have to recognize we have not been reflective (laughs) on our beliefs on this matter. We have not, especially in the Adventist church. We have never done a formal study 
um, as a denomination into, um, into, into gay marriage, into um, transgender, into asexuality, et cetera. We never have. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be a very unadventist thing because we call ourselves a people of the book, but we have not considered in a fair way what the book actually says. We've not given the others, uh, other sides, um, other perspectives, the ability to voice their opinions without threat of losing um, their job. And that actually shuts off. It's basically encouraging people to not be reflective. Yeah. But the moment you cease to be reflective is the moment you shut yourself off from the manifold of appearances that a thing can present to you and that you would be able to perceive if you weren't being prejudiced, if you weren't willingly staying stuck in a bias. Now, does that mean necessarily your opinion is going to change? Not necessarily, but it's definitely going to broaden your horizon and give you a lot more to deal with and a lot more yeah. to chew on. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really appreciate that because you're right. I don't think we have been as reflective as we can be, especially in this matter and I guess, so one thing you brought out, and I'm going to come back to something because you said something very like uh, bombshell, let's talk. Uh, <laughs> but I want to, you said something in a class the other day where you were talking about, you know, like when we look at the true harm of allowing somebody to come to a different conclusion. And I guess what I'm trying to say is like that there's grace that if somebody is convicted of something, like if somebody's convicted, that gay marriage is okay and they get married and they have a family is god going to send them to hell are you asking oh, you're, oh. Yeah, yeah i'm asking yeah. Like, <laughs> thank you for that thank you so much for that question thank you for that lob um, <laughs> and here's okay here's how here's how i approached it so when i was side yeah. b i remember one day i was reading um i was reading patriarchs and prophets if I start to not answer your question, please bring me back. Because <laughs> um, this is a very important question. Yeah. When I was reading Pay Charts and Prophets one day, and I was wrestling with this idea of like, wait a second, if we give grace to Sunday keepers and people who believe you go to heaven or, or people who believe in um, uh, immortality of the soul or all these other things, why, why don't I give? And if we believe that Abraham, David, Solomon who are all polygamists are going to be in heaven. What sense does it make for me to, I, I was really wrestling with that. I was like, how do I, so I was reading Patriarchs and Prophets. I was reading on the Ellen White app. Um, mm -hmm. You got to drop a little bit of Ellen White wherever you go. Um, <laughs> you got to drop her. Um, <laughs> I was reading Patriarchs and Prophets um, where she was commenting on, she was talking about Abraham's polygamy. And then there was a, Something else that the, the Ellen White estate was commenting on her comments on his polygamy. And they explained that God was not condoning Abraham's polygamy. Hmm. God knew where Abraham was at that time. He saw where the culture was at that time. And he was working with Abraham in his context in which polygamy was acceptable. Did that make it acceptable to God? No. Objectively, no. But God recognized this is where this person is. And I'm, I have this person on a trajectory. Hmm. And let's just, let's just assume 
that the traditional biblical sex ethic that says that heterosexual marriage is the only thing that God accepts. Let's, let's, let's assume that for right now. Yeah. According to the way that Ellen White and the Ellen White estate explained this matter, we would also, or the church should also extend grace to people who are convicted that gay marriage is acceptable. For all intents and purposes, it's two people who are adults. They are consenting and it's, they're mutually loving each other, growing each other in their faith, attending church and doing all the other things that straight married couples do, except the gender is the same. Right. I find that to be a lot, um, a lot closer to, I, it, it seems to be a lot more rational than polygamy, but yet the church is able to, we're able to, we're able to say, well, yeah, Abraham was just, you know, that that's just where he was. But well, what, what if that's just where gay people are, you know? Right, why don't we right. why don't we extend that grace there? That again is assuming the traditional biblical sex ethic is correct. So if we assume that, we have to be willing um, to grant to grant that grace and be consistent. And if we don't, again, it betrays the fact that there's prejudice there. Yeah. Um, so that's how I would and answer fear. that one. And fear and and fear. Like when I think about myself, I think. Why is it that I could not imagine a world where God would be okay with that? And I think it has mm-hmm. to do with, I don't believe in his grace. Like, yeah. I believe you have to epistemologically have everything correct. And most Adventists, yeah. who, if we're Adventists, that's, beca- that, that's why. We, like, we do believe that we have to be epistemologically correct in order to mm-hmm. be saved. And that All kinds is, of problems there. There is. There's some theological theological problems there, uh, yeah. because there's there's no way that we can know everything that God is, right? Correct. But also, there's just there is no grace in that. It's yeah. you know the truth, and if you don't, and you don't do it, you're gonna be lost. And I think that there's mm-hmm. a part of me that I I relate to people who are, and I'm sure you do too, right? Like who have that fear and. Mm-hmm. I'm having to challenge that fear and say, is that true? Like, do I really believe in a God who is that picayune about who he's going to bring into heaven? And if he is, then that's not really a religion of grace. And when I say that, I'm not saying cheap grace. I'm talking about people who are really desiring to follow him and are convicted. And so, but okay, you you dropped a a bombshell. Go ahead. Oh, can I, can I, can I actually, before you go to that bombshell, um, I actually want to comment on, on something else um, where uh, some wisdom, I believe, that Immanuel Kant brings here. Immanuel Kant is just like zaddy. I love him. I just, <laughs> mm, the, like philosophical zaddy. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, okay, here's the thing. Immanuel Kant, the reason why he developed a philosophical system that flew in the face of the past upwards of 2,000 years of Western the, um, the, uh, of Western. Um, um, theology and philosophy is he had a problem what he saw go on during um, the Middle Ages and up until up into his time where mm. the church and the king or the, uh, the government were able to because because there was the belief that our rational faculties can directly know the meaning of the word of God it pure absolutely objectively and it can know the it can know how god is um transcendently we can approach knowing god perfectly because of that 
it was able a a, um, a religious and political hegemony was set up during the Middle Ages and continued on to his day. That said, okay, we're the priests, we're the bishops, we're the king, we're the wealthy, whatever. Um, we know the will of God, and if you want to make it up, if you want to make it good with Him, you got to listen to what we say because we know what He, we know what the text actually says. And you want to know what it says? It's what we've outlined in these creeds. Don't go beyond these creeds. And Kant's like, wait a second, though. Wait, wait, wait. Everyone has the same rational faculty. Everyone has the same reasoning faculties. Everyone has the same ability to um, to aspire toward the truth. But what these or the leadership was saying is that you need to turn over your thinking to us. Hmm. And he had a problem with that. And I see Ellen White, actually, I, I'm, I'm struggling to remember where I've, I've, I've read her say this. But time and again, she was like, you are to do Bible study. You are hmm. to do your own study. You are not to just accept what the church tells you, what the pastor tells you. You're supposed to have your own relationship with Jesus Christ and be convicted for yourself. Because guess what? You aren't going to heaven or hell based on what pastor so-and-so says or what pope so-and-so says, so says or what king or queen so-and-so says. You're going to be going to heaven or hell based on your relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the truth. And I, I, it's just, it's, it's really unfortunate that we have gotten to the place in Adventism where we are, in the same way how, I would say how Kant was anti was he was an anti, or like an anti-Platonist, um, we were anti-Platonists at our beginning. Yeah. Um, we were very much Kantian in the way we approached truth. Not that truth is some loosey-goosey thing that isn't really there. No, there's absolute truth, but we're constantly progressing toward it. And we might need to amend some things um, or we might need to completely throw things out. And yet we aren't willing to do that with sexuality. And it demonstrates Oh, here's what happens, and then I'll, um, then I'll definitely want to yeah. get to your question. Here's what it does. It establishes the heteronormative way of thinking as the correct way of thinking. Straight people, cisgender people have come to believe that, they're, that they are being objective when they interpret Scripture, and that whenever we interpret Scripture when, uh, as a queer person, that I'm being overly sentimental, that I'm trying to twist mm -hmm. scripture, etc. However, Kant has demonstrated <laughs> you can't transcend your subjectivity because you're a subject. It's basically saying you're trying to transcend yourself. How can you interpret a text by transcending yourself? That makes no sense. Anyways, yeah. but that's what straight people and cisgender people purport to be able to do. Um, but in reality, they're simply baptizing or glorifying their subjectivity, raising it to the level of objectivity. So yeah. really, and I, I think in a certain way, this is just more humans trying to play God. It's more of what happened with Adam and Eve. We don't want to accept that there are, limit, there are epistemological limitations that we have and that therefore we have to be gracious with one another as we're on mm. this journey because we're all trying, we are all trying to be faithful, well, hopefully, prayer is that we're all trying to be faithful to the word of God, that we're yeah. trying to interpret it to the best of our ability. But the moment that you say to someone else who comes to a different perspective that they're not being objective, you just try to step into the place of God and that you, and you just try to make that person lower than you. Yeah. And all kinds of problems there. Yeah, I, I really love that because it, it really, when you're talking about 
you know, the call to study the Bible and to know for yourself, like what's that scripture that says to him, like if you're not convicted of it, then, mm. or, or like it's to sin. him who is, yeah, if you're not convicted of it, then it's sin. I, I'm totally mashing scriptures right now. <laughs> <laughs> he, he who knows to do, he who knows to do well and does not do it for him, it is sin. Yeah. Right. And then mm. there's one that says, let, let everyone be convinced in his own mind. Right. Exactly. And I think that that's the part that we have not allowed, right? That we, like you said, mm. in some ways we've given over our minds to, to creedalism. And mm-hmm. what happens when we have to integrate our theology and to say, how is this really like impacting the real world that I live in? Like, do I really hold this belief or mm. am I able to like compartmentalize myself? This is my religious belief and this is how I interact with the world. Like, it's it, it really challenges us to grow in our own personal like morality, but like we can't do that if we're if we're deferring that work to somebody else, to our pastor, to our church leaders. Like it really has to come from us. And I and I a part of me believes, and you know could be incorrect here, but when we look at the great controversy and the theme of when we get to heaven, we're not going to sin again, so sin will never arise again. And is it just because God is so overpowering and overwhelming? Like, we're not going to lose our ability to choose sin if we wanted to, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think a part of it is that we've grown in likeness to our morality of God, not just because we've obeyed. And I, that, not to say it's not without obedience, right? Like, we do recognize God as a Lord to submit to and to obey, but our morality is in line with him. Like, mm. that's also the only way that we can have any type of, I want to say like equal relationship with him. Like if, if the constant relationship with Jesus is one that's hierarchical, you know, mm. um, then like he says, I, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. Mm. And that denotes a certain type of equality there. And only those who are, who are willing to work out these things for themselves and say, I'm doing it not just because you told me, but because I also think it's just, because I also think this is good, because I also think this is the right thing to do, then those people are his friends. And for me, I'm in a place where I'm like, I'm where I think the Bible or other people are saying what they think is good. Let's, you know, throw LGBT people out of the church. And what I think is good, <laughs> which is to accept them, they're in conflict right now. Mm. And, that's a, and that's a conflict that I'm having to say, you know, I, how do I stand in that morality of saying, I don't think we should treat people this way mm. and we should not approach, the church should not approach people this way. This is the development of my morality that I feel like I'm coming from this from a place of your morality, Lord, but it's in mm. conflict with your church. How do I deal with that tension? So that's like, that's a real tension Mm. that sometimes you come to as you're growing out your own internalized sense of right and wrong mm-hmm. and th- that has to be developed. That is sanctification. That is a preparation for uh, the new Jerusalem. And we have to be okay with the fact that sometimes that's scary. It's a scary place to be when you're saying, I'm not sure what God thinks about this. Uh, yes. but But I think that how we treat them is wrong. <laughs> and, yeah. and I'm having to stand by that God. And, but so help me to see where you're coming from. So that, those mm-hmm. are some of my conversations. And I'm sure that other people are having those conversations with God. Mm-hmm. But you said something kind of pivotal um, that I don't want to gloss over. And we can, we can, <laughs> we can edit that part out if we need to. Oh no, let's keep can... <laughs> going. Let's go right, let's go right on. Let's go right on. Cat's out of the bag. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you said that very recently <laughs> yeah. you're becoming affirming in your theology. Yes. What does that mean and how did you get there? Oh, Lord. Okay. <laughs> so to be affirming in my theology, is, when I say that, um, it means that I affirm that gay marriage is something that the Bible permits and blesses. Um, for the first 27 years of my life, I'm 27 years now, um, I maintained a traditional biblical sex ethic that said that marriage is only supposed to be heterosexual. Um, and I was deep, I, I had been deeply ensconced in this, in this theological tradition, you know, again, for 27 years. And over the last year and a half or so, um, two years, um, especially as I, as I really began to interact with other LGBT people, um, and if it's not clear, I'm gay. Like, I hope that was clear. I don't, I don't know if I made that clear for everyone. Um, but as I began to interact with other LGBT people and understand the difficulties that we as a community face within the church and also having a pastor's heart and wanting to be there for them, even though I was, I maintain a traditional biblical sex ethic, the majority of them did not. And that called, that called me to have to think about, oh, wow, okay, but these people, these, these people who, with whom I disagree to a certain degree, they are living lives that are just as holy as me. They're, they love Jesus just as much as me. They have this shared experience as, you know, as, as, as queer people. Um, and so the level of credence that side B theology or, um, or the traditional biblical sex ethic side B refers to the traditional biblical sex ethic and side a refers to a progressive biblical sex ethic that does allow for gay marriage. So side B is what I was for 27 years in side a. So I was, I was noticing, yeah, I, I, I noticed that even though they were holding this theology with which I disagreed, they were living lives that were just as holy, God-filled, God-pursuing as mine. And I started to have problems with the fact, wait a second now, why can't they be baptized? Because they don't believe what our church says on this one point? Uh, hmm. Mm. Is that what, are, are we supposed to use our 20 fundamental beliefs to keep people from being baptized? Mm. Um, or... Oh, wait, they can't participate in the leadership of the church? It's like, but wait, they're living just as good of lives as, you know, of lives as, as the straight people who are. And I start to be really conflicted there. And the level of, oh, that's what I was saying, the level of credence that side B theology had for me began to decrease, not necessarily even on the theological content, not as far as the text or the scriptures, but as far as the on the more existential side of things it's like wait a second this is not making any sense hmm. because yeah it's just something something something's off here and within the last couple of months the last few months this of this calendar year and and really and i'm sorry to stammer so much but really over the last year since COVID went down and everything and i've had a lot more time to be introspective um if I, were, if I were being completely honest, I became very agnostic about, about matters pertaining to sexuality. I'm not agnostic. I'm agnostic. <laughs> I became agnostic about, about gay marriage, mm -hmm. etc. Um, and 
Yeah. So I, I just, I just want to, I just wanted to be an advocate. Even though I was a side B person, I just was like, you know, I don't care if you're side A or you're side B. I don't care if you're lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual, pansexual, intersex, asexual, whatever it is. I don't care. I just want you to have a place in the church and I want you to be able to participate at every level of church gov- of church participation, including leadership. I just I want that, and I want to mm-hmm. I want to create spaces for that to happen, and I want to create be a voice for that to happen. So the theology increasingly became less important, and I think I think in a large part that comes from my love of existentialism, where the rightness or the correctness of things is much more situational. It's not this. It's not that there's not absolute truth again, but it's more to say. Let's not hold our beliefs in such a way that it prevents other people from operating according to their conviction. Mm. So I, I, I just adopted a, a, an increasingly existentialist way, uh, uh, um, approach toward these matters. And mm. within the last few last couple of months or so, I've just been talking with a lot of my friends and some of my family. Just like, you know, uh, I feel really agnostic about this, but agnostic. In a, in a way where I feel like eventually I'm going to actually swing to the other side. It, it, it was very confusing, but then the, the, the holdout is the holdout there was because was that, okay, but I still have a very high view of scripture always will. Hmm. Um, I have an incredibly high view of scripture. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that, okay, yes, existentially, this matter is losing some of its strength. But scripturally, I need to make sure that whatever I believe, it's, I can back it up. But also, I had been very reticent to study affirming theology in a very thoroughgoing way because I'm smart, and I know I could, I know I could trick myself into believing something if I wanted to. I could convince myself of something, and I was like, I don't want to be that kind of person. Yeah. I don't want to trick myself into believing something. I want to actually believe something because, again, my motto is everything for the glory of God. Mm. Um, and so I was talking with one of my friends who's a pastor in the church, and she was like, yo, you, you deserve to, to study this matter out for yourself, um, to be convinced for yourself one way or another so you're not so, you know, whatever. So I was like, okay, fine, so I'll study it. So I got a few books. A few of them are sitting behind me um, on affirming theology. And these people have very high views of Scripture, very high view of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and... So Pastor Alicia Johnston, whom you had the interview with, the previous one, that caused you all kind of problems for whatever reason. <laughs> um, um, she and I, we, we have um, had uh, several dialogues um, in times past, but I heard that she was coming out with this book. And so I was like, you know what, let me just go ahead and hit her up again and have this conversation with her. And just to see, you know, what do you do with this scripture here? What do you do with Ellen White? Because I take Ellen White very seriously. What do you do with our, with our Adventist eschatology? How, how does this do, how do you deal with... Um, with our interpretations of Genesis and et cetera. How do you deal with these different things? Romans one, et cetera. And without getting into the arguments, cause that could take all day. And I, it's never been my thing to get into all the weeds with the theology. Um, unless someone just asks me, I'm willing to do it, but I mean, you know, whatever, it's my approach. Um, but as, as she was explaining things, I recognized, wow, this is the power of believing. This is the danger and the power of believing that a certain way of seeing things is the objective way of thinking, of thinking. Mm. As I was talking with her, it just occurred to me more and more, wow, I've been looking at these scriptures through a very straight lens. Mm. I've been looking at these through a very heteronormative subjectivity that was masquerading 
as objectivity. Hmm. She dim- she pulled out the relevant history. She pulled out the relevant um, 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 uh, cross re- cross referencing texts to illuminate to let the Bible interpret itself, etc. And as but what I had to do in that moment, Kendra, and this is very important. If you don't, if no, if people are listening to this here, nothing else, hear this. What I had to do was let my guard down, and hmm. and what we call in phenomenology, be willing to not only reflect on my biases. On, on potential biases or blind spots, but be able to bracket those things, to put them aside. We're not saying they're right or wrong. We're just saying, yo, I recognize that these things could stand in my way of giving this thing that I'm being presented a fair consideration. So again, looking at the water bottle, it's tempting to think that this is the only thing, this side of the water bottle is the only thing that is most essential to it, but I have to be reflective and say, okay, there's probably more to this matter. So I'm gonna bracket off what I think is most essential to it so I can consider that there's another side of it. Hmm. And so what I had to do in that moment is talk when I was, I was talking with her is say, okay, I have been raised for 27 years to think in a certain way. Yeah. All of those different approaches and theologies have been developed largely by straight white men in the West. And, and, and a whole other host of, 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 um, of other factors I had to consider is like, okay, if I'm going to really give this a consideration, I need to, I need to consider all those facts and, con- and, and, and really accept the fact that I am nowhere near objectivity. I am so far from being um, purely objective in this, in this regard. And so I put all those different, as much as I could, I put all those different presuppositions aside and listened to what she had to say and I remember at one point she showed me one thing. It doesn't matter what it was at this point. I just read it in her book. Her book is coming out in September, and it's just amazing. I've been reading the manuscript for it, and it's just amazing, guys. Just get the book. Um, and I, I, she presented one point that I had never considered and had never been addressed in all the things that I had learned in 27 years, and I had been steeped in this. Went to, went, did my undergrad in theology, did my Master of Divinity, I'm doing my PhD in philosophy. If it's there, I've heard of it. And I hadn't heard of this point that she brought up. And it started to, as I let it take its course, it started to unravel those things or to, to allow me to see a fresh, inter- a different interpretation of those things that was just as rational, just as submitted to the authority of scripture and to the authority of Christ. And I almost, I, I started to tear up and almost started to cry there because I was like, oh my God, I think mm. I've been wrong about this. Not that I think like I've been a bad person or whatever, because um, I was living up to the best light that I knew. Yeah. But I was like, wow, I think I'm wrong on this matter. Mm. And my former self was not willing to listen to these kinds of things, not even really give it the time of day. And it was just a really, it was a really beautiful moment. And in this over the last month or so, I've just had conversations with other people, allowing their subject, like allowing their, um, getting their opinions, asking, so what about this thought here? And, and say, well, here's what, here's, here's a suggestion for how to reinterpret that. And then they would come back and I would say, well, have you considered this? And we see that's, that's objectivity. That's the objectivity that we can attain where it's not, oh, I've arrived hard, definitely right here at this position, but it's one of, I'm in dialogue with other people who are holding me accountable to the things that I'm willing to believe. Mm. 
And so, yeah, I just over the last month, I'm like, I, I can't, I know all the different arguments that we can bring up on the, on the traditional biblical sex ethic side. I know all of them. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's kind of like, I feel very comfortable here. I could be wrong. And that's the thing. I still believe because of the way I think about epistemology, I recognize I could still be wrong, hmm. but the level of credence that side eighth or, um, the progressive side eighth theology or the progressive biblical sex ethic holds for me now is of such a level that it's going to take quite a bit to bring that down. And quite frankly, I'm not, I'm not really searching for it to, to bring it down. Kind of like I wasn't seeking to bring down my side B beliefs. Yeah. So it's, it's been very interesting. Um, honestly having to rethink my life in light of that, cause it has implications. Like I, for all intents and purposes could get married if I wanted to. And mm. I have no, th- I have no spiritual qualms with that. Like, I don't think on day on the day of judgment, I'm not scared of standing before the God of the universe and saying, Oh yeah, I thought this was right. I I'm not, that does not daunt me one bit, mm. but most people are like, no, you can't do it. You're going to be lost. You're going to be lost. There's no way you can be convinced of it. I am convinced of it. And if God wants to convince me by uh, otherwise, he can't, he can send his spirit to overwhelming right now. But right now the, the level of credence, the weight of credence is with side a theology. Hmm. Um, and so it's just been an interesting journey. How has that been for you? Like just kind of personally as you are, cause like, you know, you're, you're kind of the side B guy. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lord have mercy. And, and I think you've opened up some really relevant conversations. And the thing is, like, mm. I would hate anybody to not. First of mm. all, okay, anybody listening to this, if you're going to troll this page, I will, I will be so happy to block you. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so do not say anything bad about my friend Paul or Alicia or anybody. Yes. Like, this is a page where I, I, I really want the freedom of religious expression and nobody's going to get bullied here. So, um, like as you are kind of allowing yourself to enter into that freedom of like, okay, you know, maybe I, maybe I don't have to be celibate out of a necessity of salvation. How Mm. do you feel about that? Like, is there a (sighs) weight lifted from you or like, does it feel scary? I would say, honestly, that's a really good question. I would say, okay. Oh my goodness. It's, that has been so weird for me. I tell you what, because growing up, I, you know, most people grow up and they're like, I'm going to get married one day and I'm going to have this really cute wedding. And it's going to be this fairy, this, this, uh, this fairy tale wedding experience. And it's going to be like this thing. And it's just like, and for me, it's kind of like, uh, okay. Uh, (laughs) yeah. Um, that just seemed, this seemed very, I don't know. It just wasn't, it wasn't a value that I held obviously because for me, um, it wasn't a thing that I felt like I would ever be able to experience. And I, the, the few times that I tried to date women and give that honey, no. <laughs> <laughs> so only in the last month has it actually been a real consideration. I remember the first day, it was like a, a day or two after I got done talking with Alicia that I started to think I was all about all the implications. I was like, Oh no, now I have to start. I basically have to do a second coming out where mm. now I have to explain to people when I go, when they invite me to speak at events, I have to explain that I'm site A now. And it's like, oh, this sounds like a, oh, it's gonna be so much. And then it like hit me, I can get married. I went, whoa. <laughs> it like, it like smacked me so hard. I was like, and I, I don't, I'm still working on what that even, that's, that's so foreign to me. I don't know what that means. I mean, for 27 years, that was truly not a possibility. 
in mm. any way, shape, or form. Not even in a wild dream was it even because it was just it was so far away from ever happening. And all at once, at twenty-seven and a half years old, boom in my lap. It's like, wow. so it's been startling. Now, for me, people who know me very well, um, they know I sing the praises. Uh, I exalt the virtues of celibacy. Always have. Always will. Um, and I've, I've, I believe, and I truly believe this, and I will continue to believe this, I believe that celibacy is a higher calling than marriage. Hmm. And people can fight with me on it. I don't care. I think that Jesus was clear enough. I think that Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 was clear enough that we should know that celibacy is a higher calling. Sorry. Because the person who is celibate is living in such a way that they demonstrate because they're not going to have any offspring to continue their name. They're not, they don't have someone with whom to be sexually, physically sexually fulfilled. They don't have those things. They are truly in a way that married people will never experience and again, I'm willing to fight tooth and nail on this point. We'll never be able to experience. They, married people will not be able to experience Christ as, as mystical husband mm. in the way that a celibate person will. Mm. Sorry. It will not be as deep. It just won't. I, that's, yeah. my, that's my opinion. Um, and I, I agree. I, yeah. And when I, when I look at the life of Christ, people, I, I was reading something the other day where someone was saying that celibacy, um, marriage is the greatest gift. It's the way that we show the greatest love. It's the most selfless love. I'm like, that's very interesting because a single man, last time I checked, saved the world. Mm. A single well, man saved the world. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, somebody. Yeah. Paul said in First Corinthians chapter, First Corinthians um, chapter seven, that the person who is who is married is concerned with the things that have to do with their spouse, but the person who is celibate gets to focus on the things of the kingdom of God in a more focused and direct way. Mm. You're, you're, you're able to give more of your energy, more, those sexual energies that would be directed toward um, sexually fulfilling your partner and, and et cetera, are going to be directed that, that eros is going to be directed toward building the kingdom of God in a, a pure or less obstructed way. If you want to say it like that, again, marriage mm. is great. Um, I might even get married one day. I'm just going to say it right now, celibacy is the greater calling because it requires a greater level of sacrifice, um, especially in this, in, in this, um, in the West where marriage is idolized and so forth. The greater amount of sacrifice is found, I believe with celibate people. Hmm. And it's been, it's been really difficult, um, considering like I might get married now. Cause listen, I mean, like I got needs. <laughs> <laughs> Paul did say, Paul did say, if you can't control yourself, my God, right. get married because right. it's better to, to you know, help yourself out than to burn with <laughs> to burn with lust. That's scripture, and, y'all. And 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 here's and to that point, and this is another dilemma that I can pose to 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 the Christian community because Paul saw marriage as a container for sexuality. You know that that this is, you know, to contain it, to have another mm-hmm. partner to be intimate with. And to say, you know, but if you're gay, you cannot have that container. What mm. are you consigning them to? Just a life yeah. of like profligacy and just whatever, or a life of celibacy? Like, it it doesn't make sense that we don't have a ministry of marriage to queer people, yeah. and that's to me that's sad, right? Yeah. So it's very, and you know, uh, I in order to make the texts work, 
I had to believe, and it was something I had a problem with, but uh-huh. it's something that I had to like, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know what to do with it, but I, I'm just going to have to hope this works out. Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that marriage and, and celibacy are gifts that God mm-hmm. gives to people. And it, it seems as if we're supposed to take very seriously that we're supposed to discern from God whether he's called us to be married or to be celibate. Some, everyone assumes, well, if I, have, if I have these feelings and I feel like getting married, that means I'm supposed to do it. Not necessarily, sweetie. Have you read the book of Hosea? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, would, I, I thought, you know, the way I, I try to reconcile those scriptures with the fact that LGBT people don't feel, truly don't feel called was like, well, your circumstance necessitates that you have that gift. But it's kind of mm-hmm. like, wait a second, does that mean that nature forces God to give gifts? Mm. It's like circumstances di- dictate what God will and would not give. So is that really a gift if someone's forced to give something to you? I was like, that, as I thought right. about it, as I, was, as I was considering Side A over the last month or so, I was kind of like, oh, wait, that's all kind of problematic because it's not a gift anymore. It's a necessity. And so with, yeah. So that, that's one major problem there. But again, I extol the virtues of celibacy. Um, and I think that we need to set up, um, we need to set up initiatives or whatever within the church. If you're going to be a conservative denomination when it comes to sexuality, you need to set up things that are going to be there for your queer people who are, who are side B. Because guess what? Many of them are dying spiritually, just like emotionally yeah. dying, burning with lust, burning with passion, feeling lonely feeling abandoned and not cared for because at every turn you have, I have, I have, I have, I have these close friends. They just got married and their emotional and their emotional connection with me just got diminished. That person just got married. Another person just got married. Another person. Now they're having kids. All these people have increasingly less time, increasingly less and less time for me. But yet I'm supposed to believe that this is the will of God hmm. concerning me. And then furthermore, and here's the irony. Yeah. The church will say marriage is the greatest gift. And then they'll say that marriage is the way that we best understand God and his great love for us, etc., or the, the inner love of the Trinity. But then it turns around to gay people and says, but none for you. Yeah. But it's like, wait a second, if I'm supposed to know God as deeply as possible, and you're saying that marriage is the way I'm supposed to do that, what sense does it make for you to say that I'm not supposed to get married? And then right. furthermore, are you consigning me to a life of spiritual, emotional poverty? Abandonment, and, exactly. Abandonment? On, 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 before we even get to interpretation of the scripture, the fact that those existentially weighty matters don't even, don't, don't press upon people when they're interpreting demonstrates just how much of a straight subjectivity just how strong is the straight subjectivity with which they are approaching scripture and which subjectivity they are masquerading as being objectivity. And it's just not, I mean, the fact that you have these theologians out there who are, or, and pastors who are so reckless and unfeeling when it comes to this matter, they're just blunt about it. It's like, yeah, the Bible says this and it just stinks, but that's what it is. It's like, there is something existential. And even as a side B person, I had a problem with that. Yeah. Something seems off about this theology. If that's the best hope you can give is, mm, right. something's <laughs> off there. Right. 
Right. A holiness is as holiness does. Like it is, you know, there's a practical side to our theology and the fact that we are not taking into consideration the fruit of our theology and the way that it is damaging. I think that there's something to be considered there. And Paul, you are such a beautiful human being and a beautiful person. And I, I, I don't want anybody to look at your journey and be like, oh, like this is a, a flip-flop journey or I don't know, whatever crazy thing somebody might say. Mm. But like this is what it means to be on a journey with God and to be in progressive revelation. I have changed my views on things like, and that's okay. And just because it's out there somewhere or somebody wants to remember what you used to stand for doesn't mean that you can't ever change your mind or that you can't mm-hmm. gain new knowledge and now say, you know what, I'm coming to this with a different perspective. I, I've increased the repertoire of what I know, and that has changed me. And it should change us. And I think a part of like how we do theology, there is a part that we have to draw from our experience mm-hmm. in the sense of like queer people exist. They're not just a theological, uh, just, you know, a hermeneutic. Like they're not just a theory. Right. They exist. And what we feel about, you know, the theology that we hold currently as a church, like we have to take into consideration, like these people exist and this theology is hurting people. And if you want to take it from like, oh, respect the laws of the land, the laws of the land has said, do not discriminate based off of, uh, you know, race, sex, gender orientation, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so if there is a, if we're discriminating people out of the kingdom of God because of that, in some ways Mm. we're breaking the law of the land. Uh, So those who want to hold (laughs) Romans 13 or whatever, like, like there are so many ways to look at this, but what are some of the books that you were reading? Do you want to give any recommendations? Yes. Um, actually right behind me. Um, one of them is, I haven't, I've been reading Alicia's book, quite frankly. Um, Uh but, um, can you still hear me? I hope you can yeah, I can hear, hear you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is um, Bible, Gender, and Sexuality, Reframing the Church's Debate on Same-Sex Relationships, and that's by, by Brownson. Okay. Another book by Dr. David B. Gushy is Changing Our Mind. And then the last <laughs> book is God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, Alicia Johnston's book... Um, I think it's the Bible and LGBTQ Adventist. Yep. Q Adventist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I would definitely start with her book because there are going to be some things that, you know, because they are evangelicals of an, another persuasion. Um, not that Adventists consider ourselves evangelicals, but anyways, but because they are of a different faith traditions, there are going to be some things they might say that are like for us, it's like, that's not problematic right. for, you know, but so I would start off with her book and then I'm, you know, and then I'm going to read those other three books. Um, but yeah, and, and even if, and another book I would recommend, is actually not a theological text whatsoever, but it's um, How to Be Gay. The first mm. three chapters in that book, um, it's by David M. Halperin. Just fantastic. It would really help people to consider um, thinking about queerness in ways that are other than just sexual um, how queerness is also a cultural orientation as much as it is a, a sexual orientation. And so, like, for instance, if you are a person who maintains a traditional biblical sex ethic, um, if you recognize that queerness goes beyond just the sexual, well, then you can't really have a problem with queerness just in general, even if you have mm-hmm. a problem with one aspect of it. So that's, you know, that's another matter. I just like to recommend that book whenever I can. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. But those yeah. are some of the books I've read or am okay. going to read. Yeah. I, I am going to make sure that they're in my cart if they're not already. I, I think I got maybe one of those books um, in my Scribd, my Scribd account. <laughs> um, so this has been such a pleasure. I, I I'm oh, appreciate you debriefing with me and hopefully people can, can walk away with this holding space for just people coming to different conclusions and we're not uh, throwing people into the you know, the bottomless pit for <laughs> not agreeing in all ways that we do. Is there anything that you'd like to leave us with? I always like to leave my last word with my guests and you have been such a blessing to this uh, discussion today. Anything you want to leave us with? Yeah, I guess I'll just leave this one quote. I like to say a lot when I come to these kinds of conversations, if you're not willing to be wrong about everything, you can't begin to be right about anything. Hmm. I live hmm. by that principle. I think it's a principle that is captured in Adventism when it's done rightly and in Christianity when it's done rightly. And I hope that people who listen to, who have listened to this podcast will recognize your salvation is not on the line when you, when you listen to someone else, when you decide to, to, to have heart and to have a concern for the well-being of others and to consider a, a different perspective, your salvation, God is not petty like us. Um, He's petty in some ways, in, in a funny way, but not actually petty like we are. He's not arbitrary. He's not a tyrant. Um, God delights to give us salvation, and God recognizes that we are fallible beings who are going to make mistakes. Um, and he allots us so much more grace than we are willing to recognize when it comes to us trying to give space to other people. I think when we're willing to to give an ear to people who have been, who have suffered or been persecution, persecuted or put down. I think that God gives us extra grace in those moments. Mm. So don't be afraid to have your opinion modified or completely overhauled. Your salvation is not on the line. Um, mm. But your willingness to hear someone else out might be the means between life or death for someone else, whether spiritually or even physically, someone like me in my community. So um, that's yeah. probably my last word. Unless you're willing to be wrong about everything, unless you're willing to be reflective on everything, you cannot begin to be right about anything. Thank you so much, Paul. I cannot wait uh, for people to just continue to follow your journey as you finish your PhD and start your podcast, right? Like we're going to get a podcast from you at some point. I hope so. Crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. I would love to just hear you talk. I think you have a great perspective. So oh. like any everyone who's voting for Paul to start a podcast, drop him a DM <laughs> and encourage him. Oh. All right. So you guys made it to the end of the episode. And I am hoping that this conversation really began to spark some thoughts. One thing that I really appreciated uh, walking away from this conversation was the way that we view Sabbath. Right? We have a high view of Sabbath and marriage, but yet we don't criticize other denominations who are not convicted that Sabbath is the day to worship on. We have faith that God is working with them and moving upon their hearts and that we leave it up to him to be the judge. And, and, we, and we have a lot of respect for their faith. And so can we have that same respect when it comes to issues on homosexuality and marriage? So I promised that I would share with you guys something interesting at the end of this episode. 
And what I really have appreciated about Pastor Alicia Johnston and Pastor Paul Anthony Turner is they're beginning to open up the conversation for people like myself. I am belonging to the B of the LGBTQ community, um, and I really have encountered a lot of people in Adventism who identify as bisexual or who are also maybe just in the closet, very deeply in the closet. Um, And I just wanted to spend some time, you know, identifying with the community that I actually belong to, uh, rather than hiding behind uh, these spokesmen who have been on the podcast. But maybe that can give you a little more insight into why I think it's an important issue for us to study out. And it is something that I have spent a lot of time wrestling with and talking with God about and studying my scripture and reading other literature about. And there is some literature that has just not cut the mustard, to be honest with you, uh, that I've had unsatisfactory answers. um, And it began this journey of exploration. So this is, you know, I'm not here promulgating any point of view at this point. I am simply opening up space for this conversation. And what I appreciate about Pastor Johnston and uh, Pastor Turner is that they've opened up space for me to affirm my own identity and for there to be a removal of a lot of shame and secrecy and a sense of, and uh, Pastor Alicia Johnson talks about this, this this genuine real fear, right? We know that if we do not toe the line, um, that there can be some very real and severe consequences. And I think in that way, a lot of queer voices have been silenced and they have been marginalized and villainized, quite frankly. And I just, I find that very unjust and unfair. And so, uh, you know, if you stay to the end of this episode, I don't think there's any greater introduction uh, to me kind of owning my own queer identity, which is something that I've owned in private for a very long time, uh, but not coming out in any public way or especially not in the Adventist circles way, right? Um, But there's no better introduction than having these uh, two great theologians kind of paving the way for even just a self-acceptance. I know that you know, Adventism on the surface, as you may identify in this way, and there will be no repercussions, but there really is a sword of Gamacles hanging overhead. And, uh, you know, just for someone to take that sword away and say, you know, you can come out, it's safe. I hope that we begin to have these conversations of really creating safe spaces, uh, because I believe more people will come out. And right now, I think people are quietly leaving or they are doing their best to conform into an identity that would be acceptable. And we talk about cheap grace, but I think to uh, place the amount of conditions we do upon the queer community for acceptance, that's cheap. That, that, that's cheap love. That doesn't run very deep. And I want to just create space for people to be loved in a genuine way. So that's the surprise at the end of this episode if you've made it this far and if you haven't then you've missed out on pretty big news um but i hope to see you all next week and uh stay tuned for more episodes as we continue to just take this journey together one day at a time